This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Hello, everyone, and welcome to British Murders, the podcast that focuses exclusively on British murder cases with an occasional glimpse at horror movies. I'm your host, Stuart Blues, and this week is going to be a little bit different to my usual format for a couple of reasons. Firstly, we're taking a break from British cases this week. We're focusing instead on three historical murder cases that took place in the United States of America. Secondly, we'll also be exploring something which I don't usually cover on British murders, and that's all things paranormal. Joining me on this journey into both true crime and the paranormal is my very special guest, Christy Sumner. Welcome to the show, Christy. Thanks, Stuart. I appreciate it. Now, Christy and I spoke to each other briefly. I think it was the back end of last year, wasn't it? 2020, when we first sort of linked it up was. on Facebook, I think it was. Yeah, I think it was around September of 2020, something like that. Yeah. I had an old podcast with a friend of mine, and we sort of did an interview-style show, and Christy reached out on Facebook on I went on one of those be a guest or need a guest Facebook forums kind of thing. So we spoke briefly last year, but I thought, well, what I'll do is I'll just let you sort of introduce yourself and what you do. That might be easier. I think that's where I went wrong last time. (laughs) (laughs) Sure. No worries. Um, Well, my name is Christy Sumner and I'm the founder of Soul Sisters Paranormal, which is an all-female paranormal investigation group that I started with my twin sister, uh, our younger sister, and then two female family friends. We started that in 2014. And what we do is we go around the country exploring historic and reportedly haunted locations, really telling the historical narrative of those locations and then coupling that with any paranormal activity that we find during our overnight investigation of those locations. It's so cool. It's such, <laughs> it's a, such, a, it's such a cool <laughs> thing. I remember when you reached out and I was like, oh my God, that looks so, so interesting. I think on this format, on this show, it's going to be a little bit more relevant because you not only cover the paranormal side, but there's also the background of the actual true crime cases where most of them are murders, right? Where you look into these places. Correct. Yeah. Murders are, are some some type of tragic event um, in the, the historically speaking. Um, you know, we also do like uh, battlefields and such, but the three that we'll talk about today are murders. Yep. Cool. So let's just go into sort of what your process is then before we get into the actual cases. So when you, let's say you get called to investigate um, a haunted house or a battlefield or whatever you do. So what's the process you take as far as this is what we do first, and then we're going to do this. What's your sort of process with that? 
Sure. So we actually have two types of what I call for- formal investigations. The first one are those more commercial locations, such as the Villisca Axe Murder House, the Lizzie Borden House, um, Brushy Mountain State Penitentiary, these locations that are known to have a historical and haunted background. So we'll go to those locations. Sometimes we will get called um, to visit those. And then we also get residential locations and business locations where a private individual will call us and say, hey, I think there's something going on in my house. Can you come and investigate. And so our process with both is that we first do a very detailed deep dive into the history the history of that location, whether it be uh, an axe murder house or a prison or even a private business. We want to research the history, uh, the, the property records and such, and then um, try to figure out if we can find, you know, what may be causing the quote unquote hauntings. And then after that, we'll take a day tour just to kind of look around the grounds and see if we can come up with any environmental factors that may explain um, what somebody is considering a haunting, um, such as light pollution, noise pollution, uh, train traffic, airline traffic overhead, dogs or kids in the neighborhood, that sort of thing. Anything that um, somebody who's really not paying attention to it might consider that paranormal. Uh, And then after that, we will conduct a nighttime investigation where we'll go in for anywhere from 8, 10, 24, 48 hours to investigate this location and see if we can come up with something that is unexplainable. And so that's that's really is our process on, on how we do that. Okay. How many times would you say on average out of 10, it is just people overreacting to little, like we have planes going overhead here. We have a train track quite close, cars outside, birds landed on the satellite dish. How many times would you say on average, it's normally people hearing what they want to hear rather than what's actually there? I'd say about 25% of the time, um, there's something that we can explain uh, that that causes people to think that it's paranormal, uh, that they just weren't thinking about it. And we say, no, I, we think it's this. So for example, we got called into a business at one point and he had a brick and mortar location. Um, it was a, a, a store that had a, all front windows, uh, had mirrors running down the sides of the of the uh, the store. He had some display cases and such inside and he had night vision video cameras up. So he called us because the night vision video cameras in his mind was picking up anomalies, um, different things during the night. So we, we spent about seven hours in this location. Um, none of our equipment picked up anything. We weren't feeling anything. Um, so we left our night vision video cameras uh, to run the rest of the evening. And we had them in various locations in this store. And so when we went back the next day, I asked him if his cameras had, had picked up any anomalies. And he said, yes, it was very active. And so I said, well, give me the timestamp and I'm going to cross-reference them with our video cameras. And so what we found was is that the way his storefront was positioned, he was running perpendicular to a a road that had a high high volume of U-turn traffic. So when the cars would make a U-turn, the headlights would go into this storefront windows, bounce off the mirrors, and essentially blind his night vision video cameras to the point where he was considering it an anomaly. And so I told him, either take the mirrors down or change the angles of your night vision video camera. And I think your haunting will go away. And it did. So those are the things that we really look for to try to figure out if we can have a plausible explanation before we go to something that's paranormal. Now, that being said, there's been a lot of locations where we've captured things that we just cannot explain. Yeah. So when you started out, when did you start out with the with the Soul Sisters? 
We formally started in 2014. Um, we went to the West Virginia State Penitentiary as a girls trip. It was just my sisters and I getting together in Moundsville, West Virginia. And we had a family friend that sat on the board of that facility. And he said, you know, why don't you come and stay the night at the West Virginia State Penitentiary and see if you can connect with any of our resident spirits. And so we just took a couple of cameras, a couple of voice recorders, and we left that experience with what we felt was compelling, unexplained evidence. I mean, men's voices when there were no men in the area, doors slamming, footsteps running at us in the darkness when we knew that there was nobody else in front of us. And so that really led us to want to explore this further. And uh, so that's why we formed Soul Sisters. Okay. And when you started out, was it more visiting places that you wanted to visit? And then once you got a bit of a reputation, people started approaching you for hotels, houses, that kind of stuff. That's it exactly. So we felt that in order to gain a reputation and to really build up our portfolio uh, within the paranormal community, we wanted to, and we felt we needed to go to these larger, uh, quote unquote, bucket list locations. So West Virginia was our very first, the Trans-Allegheny Lunatic Asylum was our second, Fort Mifflin was our third. Um, and then we just moved on to things like the St. Augustine Lighthouse, the Velisca Axe Murder House, uh, because we felt that we really needed to explore these locations to build build our technique and to really to build some legitimacy and credibility with what we're doing. And um, I, I think that was a, a bold approach for us, but I think it helped. It, it allowed us to um, get some recognition in the paranormal community. It allowed us to get some followers on Facebook and YouTube. Uh, so th I think that, like I said, it really kind of led to our credibility on that. Yeah. I think from a marketing standpoint, starting with more notorious places, is probably the right thing to do. It's kind of similar that with my first season, I did more notorious cases that people had heard of. Right. So you, you do build up a following like you will have done. And then once you've got that fan base, you can take on requests for lesser known things, which is pretty mm -hmm. cool. Exactly. Uh, exactly. And you do it all on YouTube, right? I remember watching, I think it might've been the Lizzie Borden video, but we'll get there. Mm -hmm. uh, my God. It scared me. <laughs> it scared me so much. But like you said, because it was an all female troop, Mm -hmm. And you could hear men's voices knowing, because I imagine you secure the area, right? Before you start. We do. Yeah, we do. Yeah, we make sure that we we have control of the environment as, as best as we can. And by that, I mean, you know, we set up cameras facing the outside as well as the inside. You know, we have a, a, a count of where everybody is on the property or in the building at all times. We all wear body cameras that have a timestamp on them. So if we hear something when we go back and do our evidence review, we can cross-reference those times and say, okay, um, you know, was Christy in the area at that time or Michelle or Jenny or somebody else um, that, that could have contributed to the noise or the light that we were seeing or hearing. And so to your point, yes, we, we, to the best that we can, we lock it down and try to account for everything environmentally before we say, yeah, this is something to us that's unexplainable. And if you, so say there's all four of you are there mm -hmm. and one of you hears a noise, do you have like a little notepad that you'll say, right, this time, and do you, do you all set your watches at the same time or? We, we, we do something like that. Um, most of the time we'll say mark, um, which means we look at the, uh, when we're going back and listening to the audio, um, you know, we'll, we'll hear that on the audio and then we'll, we'll really pay attention to that situation. Mm -hmm. um, so sometimes we do write notes down, but, uh, you know, a lot of the time our hands are full with some of our handheld equipment. So most of the time it's just speaking into the voice recorder because, like I said, we all have a body camera and we all have a voice recorder on us. So most of the time it's just saying something like, 
mark this time or go back 10 seconds to see if you hear this, if we didn't hear it beforehand. Yeah. Um, so that, that's really kind of how we handle that. Would that make an adjustment on the on the actual sound wave so you could pick up like a spike and think I'll zoom in on that point? Or do you, do you speak throughout the night or is it quite a quiet thing that you do? Uh, kind of both. I mean, we're always asking questions during the night, but when we go back and review our audio, we don't put it through any software. So we don't see a spike in anything. What okay. I do, what we basically do is we just put in our headphones and listen to it in the raw. And because I, I feel that uh, there's some voices that are so low or sometimes so deep that they don't register a spike on a video or on, a, on an audio software. And I just don't want to miss anything. And so we, there's at no point do we run our our voice recorders or our video cameras through any type of audio or, or um, editing software okay and do you produce some kind of report to the person who's requested the investigation Yes, we absolutely do. Um, so if it's a private uh, business or a private home that has requested us to come in, uh, we will give them a, a thumb drive with everything that we found, um, the things that we cannot explain. And in some cases, as I said before, with that business, you know, we'll tell them, you know, this is what we think it is. And so we give that to them and it's up to them to decide whether or not they want to distribute that or showcase that in any way. Um, we will never post anything that has to do with a private residence or business. Um, we feel that's not our place. If the, the owner wants to do something with it, then they absolutely can. So do you then need to request their permission to put anything on YouTube because it's inside their property? Are there any legalities with, with posting stuff like that? If we did post it, then yes, we would get their permission. Absolutely. Um, but as I said before, if it's a private residence or business, we just don't even go there. Um, yeah. We say, this is yours. You know, we give you permission to to post it if you want. We actually give them our permission to, to, to showcase it um, rather than us doing it. Okay. Oh, that's good. And you mentioned the first one was kind of a girl's night. Y'all got together and, and fancied a bit of a haunted night. So is, is the paranormal and all things spooky something you've always been interested in? It has been. Um, my sisters and I, we we come from a, a research-minded background, and we grew up watching the popular television shows, Ghost Hunters, Ghost Adventures, and such. But we always found ourselves saying, you know, why didn't they use this technique, or why didn't they ask this question, or or go to this location? So we always told ourselves, if we had the opportunity to go on a paranormal investigation, we would jump on it. And it just really happened to present itself when we went to Moundsville and, and had the opportunity to go to the West Virginia State Penitentiary. Because don't you have like a law degree or something? I've got a PhD. So PhD, I've got a PhD yeah. in, uh, in public affairs with an emphasis on criminal justice. And my twin sister has the same degree. Uh, Michelle is a lawyer. Cara is a lawyer. And Kim has a master's in uh, history and education. I think it's good that you bring that level of education to an investigation rather than because i imagine a lot of the groups out there will maybe not treat it as i think saying not as seriously as used probably the wrong term but not as clear and going in with an actual logical perspective rather than going in and being scared at every noise that that makes sense because because <laughs> it's a, you don't like go in and think i'm going to see a ghost today i imagine you, you approach it from a logical perspective and try rule things out straight away with a normal explanation. We do. We go in with a healthy skepticism to all of the locations that we investigate. Uh, we just go in with that mindset of, you know, if we capture something that's unexplainable, uh, then that's going to be a, a really cool thing to highlight for the investigation. But we're also looking at it from the historical perspective. You know, we get to have a very tactile experience with these historical places that not a lot of people get the opportunity to do. Uh, you know, I got to touch the doorknobs in the Lizzie Borden house or stay the night in the St. Augustine Lighthouse or Brushy Mountain State Penitentiary. Um, 
the the investigators that we are familiar with in the paranormal community, they really do have that like-minded vision of what what we do, right? You go in with finding the the historical aspects first, and then coupling that with paranormal investigations. Um, I, I think the the common perception now um, with regard to people that watch quote unquote paranormal shows is that it's an instant gratification thing and you are going in for like a quote unquote jump scare and that's not what we're doing. So to me, there is a difference between those people who consider themselves paranormal investigators, which would, that's what we are, uh, legitimate researchers going in to investigate these locations um, from YouTubers who are just going in and essentially doing a live video while, while they're walking through these quote unquote haunted locations. Um, and then to ghost hunters and ghost hunters are really those that, that want an experience, but they're not there to really document it or highlight it in any way. Um, so there are those three different facets that are a little bit different in, in our approaches, not to say that one is better or worse than the other. Um, but when we categorize ourselves as paranormal investigators, as most of our friends in this community do, uh, it, it they, we all are those those group of people who are legitimately in it for paranormal research um, and to tell the historical narrative of those locations really for preservation efforts. Yeah. No, that's cool. I think, yeah, like you said, not one isn't better than the other. They've all got fan bases for different reasons. I think the ghost hunters thing is probably more, you might just go and someone will take you on a guided tour around somewhere that's, you know, like Jack the Ripper kind of thing. Right. The streets of, I forget what the area is called. It begins with a W. <laughs> I can't remember. It, I, can't I, I had it until you said it. And then I, I was going to say it. Now I lost it. Never mind. We'll find it. <laughs> <laughs> but why don't we then? Let's get on to, because we're going to do three cases today, as we've mentioned. And the first one is Ma Barker. Ma is in MA. Yes. Original name. I did a little bit of research, but I will let you tell the story. So mm-hmm. apparently she had a few aliases. Ma she Barker, did. she yep. was Kate Barker, Arizona Barker, Ari Barker, and she mm-hmm. was, I, I got from my research, basically the leader of, or the four leader of a gang that her son was in, but you'll be able to tell the story better than <laughs> Correct. Yeah, that, that's that's a general overview of it. Absolutely. Um, so Ma Barker was born uh, Arizona Donnie Kate Clark was, was the name she was born under. Um, she hated the name Arizona, so she went by Kate or sometimes people refer to her as Ari. And um, she was born in the late 1870s and she really wanted a more affluent lifestyle than what she was born into. And so she married a guy by the name of George Clark. And so they had four sons and really from an early age, all four of those sons um, started delving into a life of crime, petty theft and so on and so forth. And Ma would always go to court, back him up and say, you know, don't, don't arrest my son. He's a good boy. He just went a little astray. And so she was always there for them. So um, as they grew up, again, their their uh, criminal escapades really um, flourished. And so they were providing her with a lifestyle that she really wanted, right? So a lot of the money was going to fund her lifestyle. And so in um, the late 1920s, they formed really the, the, the Barker gang. And Fred Barker, one of her sons, had a good friend named Alvin Carpus. He was a criminal in his own right. Um, he had several bank robberies under his belt by the time they met. And so they actually formed the Barker Carpus gang. And it was one of the most prolific gangs of the 19, late 1920s, early 1930s gangster era. 
And you've got to understand that there are a couple things going on at the same time. So from 1929 to 1939, you've got the Great Depression. And then from 1922 to about 1933, you've got prohibition. And what prohibition has done is it created two different types of criminals. The first one was organized criminals. And those are more like the Al Capones of the world, right? They're the ones that are going in there, making this bootleg uh, whiskey, but they're also at the same time forming partnerships with law enforcement. So law enforcement is really turning a blind eye to criminals at this point. And the gangsters under which Ma Barker and the Barker Carpus gang fall, they are taking advantage of that structure, right? So very little law enforcement, um, jurisdictional issues really become a problem because you've got the bank robbers crossing state lines. And at the state lines, this is where the, the jurisdiction of the state's law enforcement stops. So bank robbers can go from state to state and really not fear any repercussions at this time. Okay. So that really allowed the Barker Carpets gang to really flourish at this point. Um, in 1924, uh, J. Edgar Hoover comes to become the head of the FBI. So he's really trying to put the kibosh on all of these gangsters. The Barker Carpets gang, again, are running around committing bank robberies. In 1934, they decided they wanted to escalate to kidnapping. So they kidnap a guy by the name of William Ham Jr., who was a prosperous brewer, and they got a $100,000 ransom for his safe return. So because of that success, they kidnapped a guy by the name of Edward Bremer, and they asked $200,000 for his safe return. So once they got that, that ransom money and they returned uh, him unharmed, now J. Edgar Hoover is really going after them because they have violated the 1932 Lindbergh Act, um, which is a, a federal uh, uh, act against kidnapping. Okay. So the Barker Carpus gang disperses at this time and they go in different directions. And one of Ma's sons, um, Arthur, he goes to Chicago and Ma and Fred, they go down to this little town in central Florida called Oklawaha. And they rented this house under the name of TC Blackburn. That was their alias at the time. So this was in ninth, this was November of 1934. So they're in this hideout down in central Florida, essentially just kind of living the good life by this lake called Lake Weir. Um, um, and so they're 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 spending money in the towns. Nobody knows who they are, they really are, but they're very affluent with with their persona at this time. So really not trying to hide themselves. So in January of 1935, J. Edgar Hoover. Um, he tracks down Arthur, one of her sons, in Chicago. So they track him down. And when they raid his apartment, they find a letter that had been written by Ma. And it said, we're having a great time in Florida. Your brother is hunting an alligator named Big Joe. And so the... The FBI, they go down to Florida and they say, they start asking alligator trappers, where is a lake that has an alligator nicknamed Big Joe? And Lake Weir was that lake. And so the FBI on January, in early January, descended on central Florida to Lake Weir. And um, on January 16th, 1935, they surround this little house that the, the, the uh, Ma and Fred had rented and they open fire and a gun battle ensues, which is the longest gun battle in FBI history. And over 2,000 rounds were fired between the two sides, and it culminated in Ma and Fred being killed in this house. So after they were killed, their body laid in a morgue for about eight months until it was claimed by, by Ma's husband. But 
the reports from that, after they were killed, almost immediately, neighbors started reporting that they were hearing sounds from the house, um, that they were seeing ghosts in the house, that lights would turn on when there was nobody there. And so um, in uh, 2019, Soul Sisters Paranormal became the first paranormal investigation team uh, allowed to investigate this house. And so that's really why we we were very um, uh, familiar with the history of this location. Yeah. That's such a cool... I say cool, it's horrible, isn't it, really? <laughs> but that's, I mean, you definitely know your knowledge, which is fantastic. Well, thank you. So how, was it basically, was it the state of Florida that owned the house then? And was it a case of red tape that was preventing anyone going in? And that's a great question. So the the original house was built in 1930 by Carson Bradford, and this was just a vacation home for him. He had no intentions of renting it, um, but Ma and Fred, when they came down and, and used the alias T.C. Blackburn, they offered him $100 a month to rent the house. Other rentals in the property were going for about $7 a month. So he, he thought, okay, I'm just going to go ahead and do this. And so he did not know who, obviously, who he was renting it to. So after the shootout, the house was maintained by the Carson Bradford family up until 2016. And what's interesting about it is when you go into the house, it is almost pristine in the preservation as it was of 1935. And by that, I mean, you, there's still bullet holes in the wall. There's still bullet holes in the furniture that's in the house. It's all original um, to the 1930s. So the couches, the chairs, the beds, uh, you know, the sconces on the wall, everything but the windows are original to the house. And so they had the presence of mind to preserve it as it was during the shootout. And so, as I said before, they maintained it in the family up until 2016. And so they weren't allowing anybody to go in there and invest Investigate it because it was their family home. In 2016, they decided to sell the, the property and the house. The new owner was going to demolish the house. And so Marion County, uh, the, the county where the house is located, said, don't demolish it. We will take it and we will move it off the land. So they bought the house for $250,000 and they put it on a barge and they floated it across Lake Weir uh, to another location that the state owns. Um, and so it sits now vacant on about 40 acres of land. There's no light pollution to it. I mean, there's no electricity to it. So there's no light pollution inside. There's no water to it. So none of that. It's, it's really just sitting vacant in the dark by itself. And so what we did is we went to Marion County and said, will you allow us to be the first paranormal investigation team to investigate this house? And they allowed us to do so. Cool. So is the house, is it any form of security around it or can people if they wanted to could they in theory i'm not condoning this book could they could they, <laughs> they just go in they could find it um they could find it the 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 issue is that it is in a state park so there is a a, a small fence around the entire property but it it's very if you don't know where it's where it's at you're not going to be able to find it um you need a four-wheel drive vehicle to get back to it because it's in the, it's sitting on the florida sand it's in the woods so you're you, you, you there's really no address to it right now um and so it is difficult to find if you don't know what you're looking for but theoretically yes somebody can walk up to it okay please don't do that guys without permission <laughs> <laughs> so let so talk me through it then so you've got your permission Mm -hmm. You're yep. planning on your trip to the house. Yep. 
Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. You've got all your equipment. You've done your day tour. Now you you get into the real nitty gritty yep. nighttime now stuff. We, now we get into the paranormal investigation. So. As I said before, the the shootout happened on January 16th, 1935. So what I wanted to do was I wanted to be or at least have equipment in the house on the anniversary of the shootout, the exact time that the shootout happened 83 years prior. So what we did is we set up equipment um, on on the night of the 15th, January 15th, and we then we left it to run by itself, unattended by anybody. So we locked the doors and we left the location. And so we let it run. And when we went back, we collected all of it and we started going through all of the video and all of the audio from that night. And what we found was we captured some light anomalies that we couldn't explain, some some lights that were running across the um, the main living room and over the stairwell of the house. It's a two-story house. And so those things we couldn't explain because there's no light anywhere around this location. And then we were capturing voices that we couldn't explain. Again, this house is locked. I have complete control of this environment. Uh, yet we captured a man's voice saying, get out. We captured the sound of what sounds like a chair being drug across the hardwood. Um, we captured the sounds of what sounded like a drawer being opened. And then interesting, when we listen to the audio from what we call the quote-unquote kill room, this was the second story uh, room, bedroom, that Ma and Fred barricaded themselves in, and this is where their bodies were found. And so we call that the kill room. And when we listened to the audio from the kill room, at about 5.30 in the morning, which is when the shootout occurred or when it started, we captured two voices. The first one said, Freddie. The next one said, yeah, Ma. And the first one said, get ready, which I think is what we call a residual haunting. I think that actually happened 83 years prior. So for us, that was a, an extremely interesting um, phenomenon to catch. And then after that, about two weeks later, my sister Jenny and I, we went back to the house and we stayed the night in the house. And so we conducted a variety of experiments. We have different pieces of handheld equipment. And one of the pieces of equipment that we have it's called a spirit box. And generally speaking, it's a small AM FM radio that's been modified to very quickly sweep through frequencies. So when you turn it on and you hit sweep, it goes as it's sweeping through all of these frequencies. The idea is that spirits can use the white noise between, between the frequencies to communicate with us. So theoretically, if, if you don't believe in the spirit box, then you should never hear a full phrase coming through this box, right? Because it's going so quickly through these AM and FM radio stations. Um, but when we were up there in the room, I asked the question, what happened in this room? And we get the phrase and it says, they murdered us, we the ones dead. And behind that phrase, you can hear it still going through those radio frequencies. So that to me is extremely telling. Um, we asked if Alvin was there, i.e. Alvin Carpus, and we got the name Alvin Carpus. Uh, I had never said the last name Carpus. I just said, Alvin, are you here? The spirit box said Alvin Carpus. Um, we have another device called a REM pod. And uh, again, generally speaking, it's a device designed to measure electromagnetic energy. So if there's no energy, i.e. power acting upon it, then theoretically I should be able to sit this in a room 
And if nothing's acting upon it, it is never going to alarm. It's never going to go off. The lights array is never going to go off. Yet when we were sitting in the kill room and we had this REM pod there, Jenny and I were sitting about 15 feet back from it. And we started asking questions like, Fred, are you here? If you are, can you touch that device? And the, the, the device started going off and we said, okay, step back. And then it stopped. And so through a series of questions, we were able to determine what we believe that Fred and his ma's uh, spirit are still there in that house. Jesus. <laughs> I'm so scared listening to you say that. I was, just like, <laughs> I was just like, oh, so, you know, you mentioned the residual haunting. Mm-hmm. Did you visit the house around the anniversary of it? Yeah. And so that's what, that's what we wanted. Um, so th- like I said, the anniversary was on January 16th. We set up our equipment on January 15th, the night of January 15th. And then we turned everything on to record. And then we left. You see us leave the, leave the house. We locked the door. Um, nobody else approaches the house during the night. Cause I have a, a camera on the outside as well. So you can see that nobody approaches the house. Um, and so it, the audio and video were recording um, into the morning of January the 16th, which was the 83rd anniversary of the shootout. So do you think that happens every year on that same day at that same time? Is that I what? think it's a po- yeah I think it's a possibility if you're listening for it. Um, right. Okay. I, I, and and I I do believe because we were listening for it we were fortunate enough to hear it. So yeah I do believe that it, it is something that could happen on every anniversary. Yeah, like a tree falling in the woods. Mm-hmm, exactly. I suppose that's really interesting because there's a guy on YouTube who explores abandoned mine shafts. Mm-hmm. I don't know where it's somewhere in America. And he, one of his videos had a voice and it sounded like an alarm, mm-hmm. like a mine alarm and someone shouting a voice. And someone in the comments said it was something like that. It's just energy stored over from maybe a, a mine shaft tunnel collapse hundred years ago. Mm-hmm. And it just, if you're there to hear it, it'll come out exactly as it's such a strange thing. Is that actually something that people have looked into and confirmed that this is the, from the energy perspective, it's, it's quite hard to fathom really. It is. And that, that is something that, you know, paranormal investigators, we do research that and it is a, a legitimate phenomena um, that we consider legitimate. Um, the way I describe it is essentially if you imagine a vinyl record, right, and it's spinning on the record player and there's a scratch on the record, every time the needle hits that scratch, it's going to blip. And that's how I kind of explain the residual haunting. Every time something happens like an anniversary or a buzzword or a keyword or a sound, it's essentially like a blip in time. It, it's going to, it essentially scratches into the time. And so that's that's really how I kind of explain it. It's, it's going to happen on an anniversary if somebody's looking for it or, um, you know, say you're um, at a civil war battlefield and you fire a musket, you know, that could cause a residual haunting, something that triggers that residual haunting. Um, so that that's really kind of how I explain that. How's your, just before we go on to the second case, what's your approach like with regards to battlefields, because it's such an open area. Do you focus on one specific area that's had more bloodshed there? Um, with, well, with regard to the Civil War, that's kind of tough because um, a, a lot of the battles were stretched out over long, long areas, right, or larger areas. Mm. Um, so when you go to some place like Gettysburg, uh, that's a very interesting battlefield because you have specific pockets where large numbers of people were killed instantaneously, right? Um, so when we when we go to some place like Gettysburg or the Chickamauga battlefield or you know other battlefields like that, you, there are locations where you can pinpoint. Okay, this is this was where a large. Um, 
amount of death happened at the same time. And so we do focus on those things. Um, but it's not uncommon to be at a battlefield and you're just kind of walking some of the trails to see something that you can't explain or to hear something that you can't explain. Um, I, I think just the large release of energy, uh, negative energy um, or emotional energy, I'll, I should say, um, at that same point in time, I think that leads to a lot of hauntings on battlefields. Yeah. It was Whitechapel, by the way. Jack the Ripper. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> I knew it was white. I knew it was white. I kept wanting to say White Hall. Yeah. But yeah, White Chapel. It came to my head there. Right. So let's get on to the second case we're going to talk about. Now, this is Lizzie Borden. Mm-hmm. So she, again, notorious in America. I've heard of her, thanks to The Simpsons. <laughs> Axe murderer. Of, I thought you were going to say thank the Soul Sisters. The, well, you had to go yeah. with Simpsons. <laughs> I got the detail from you, but I got the name from go. The Simpsons. <laughs> But yeah, so tell us about Lizzie Borden. Yeah, Lizzie Borden is an interesting case. And um, just just to go into this house, as I said before, to have that experience of being in the house, you, you know, when you watch it on television or on, on popular YouTube channels or whatever, it, there's, there's just a dis- different perspective from seeing it on video to actually being in it. Um, it's a little bit smaller footprint than I was anticipating. And the rooms are extremely... They're, they're different than any other house I've ever been in. And by that, I mean, there's just a connection of rooms, you know, via a certain doorway or a stairway. Um, the way they're configured is extremely interesting. So you've got to go through one bedroom to get to another bedroom, or you've got to go through two bedrooms to get to a bathroom. Um, so it's a very interesting configuration, especially on the, the third and the, uh, the second and the third floors. Um, but the Lizzie Borden case is, is extremely interesting. As, as you said, it's uh, very well known here in the U.S. Uh, this happened in 1892. And And um, Andrew and Abby Borden had uh, two daughters, uh, Lizzie and Emma, and uh, Abby was actually their stepdaughter. And Andrew Borden was extremely wealthy. Uh, he, he had a lot of different um, uh, properties. He had some different investments. So he was a very wealthy guy, yet he wanted to live like a miser. And so his, his children really kind of resented that. They wanted to live in a higher status, a higher class, um, but he was very reluctant to do so. So they, he didn't spend or flaunt his money at all or allow his kids to do so. Um, so the house is, is by the standards of Fall Rivers, Massachusetts, extremely small. And um, so in, in 1892, Lizzie uh, started running out of the house and saying, you know, my, my mom's been murdered. My dad's been murdered. Somebody send helps and, you know, come out and, um, you know, come into the house. And they, there was actually a, a patrolman nearby, a police officer, and he ran into the house almost immediately. And they found uh, Andrew in the parlor and Abby was upstairs. They had both been bludgeoned to death. Um, uh, I think Andrew uh, 16 times, he'd been hit by an axe 16 times. And uh, Abby had been struck in the head about 11 times with an axe. And um, so they blamed Lizzie for it. She was arrested for the murder of the of the of Abby and Andrew. However, she was acquitted um, in the fall of the the following year. And the jury was made up of 12 men, and it was really theorized that they were convinced that a woman could not be capable of creating such a, a heinous crime scene as this was. And so that's why they, they acquitted her. Um, the interesting thing is, is after Lizzie was acquitted, she never left Fall River. She, she lived until the age of 66, and she lived in Fall River. And to me, that is, is extremely interesting when you look at this case, because you would think that if somebody was uh, accused of such a heinous crime and was acquitted, that you would leave the area immediately. But she didn't. She stayed there, which to me is extremely interesting. Um, but uh, today, the case is still unsolved. Most people suspect that Lizzie did uh, commit the murders, uh, but it's still an unsolved murder. 
Yeah. Do you think she did it? I do. I, I do think she did it. I, just because, like I said, when you walk into the house, um, there's no way in my mind that you could be home um, or very close to the property and not have, and the way the house is configured, not have seen Abby's body um, and or heard the killing and then find Andrew's body. Um, and by that, I mean, when they went to look at the crime scene, they 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 found out through forensics that Abby was killed um, 45 minutes to an hour earlier than Andrew was killed. And that's interesting when you look at it as well, because the way the way the familial structure in the in the inherited structure worked at the time, if Andrew had been killed first, then all of the money and property that he owned would have gone instantaneously to Abby Borden. Um, and when she was killed, then all of that money and inheritance would have gone to her family. However, because she was killed first, right. everything right. that she owned went to Andrew, even though he died 90 minutes later. And then that meant that when he died, everything went to Emma and Lizzie Borden. And so when you look at that, that's kind of interesting as well. So to answer your question, I do believe that she did it. Uh, I think there's various reasons why. Um, I, I'm not sure if the inheritance was the driving factor behind it, but I just don't think that you could be in that house and not have seen Abby's body lying there for that long before you found Andrew. Huh. So that's interesting. So based on, for um, not forensics, autopsies mm -hmm. and figuring out the time of death that has an effect on stuff like wills and where mm -hmm. the estate money goes really I, did, I never knew that that's interesting yeah absolutely absolutely so um they determined that like um uh, abby's body was cold at the time uh, the blood had already started to dry around abby's body uh when they found andrew it was almost immediately after it happened his body was still warm the blood was still flowing from the wound so they knew that he had been killed second and like i said before it, since he, they they were able to precisely determined that he was killed second all of abby's inheritance went to him and then ergo when he was killed everything went to lizzie and uh to uh, emma okay so when you you know this this strange layout of the house so you have to go I, I'm, I'm almost picturing like um almost like a long corridor but just bent around a house kind of thing so andrew was killed second was he almost further into the house than than abby was the other one Okay, so the way the house is structured, if you picture a rectangle, right, um, and it's a three-story rectangle, mm -hmm. and so when you walk in the front door, immediately to your left is a is a small sitting room, um, which was uh, the the men's smoking area, really, and then there's a little um, a little foyer right in front of the door. If you walk straight, that's the main parlor, and that's where Andrew was killed. Now, okay. come back to the front door, and we're walking in the front door again. When you turn immediately to your right, that's the stairwell that goes up to the second floor. And it, it turns. It's not a straight stairwell. It, it curves, one curve up. And so when you're walking up and you're about the middle of the stairs, now your eye is level with the second story. And there's a, there's a banister. So you can see through the banister. And when you look to your left, immediately when you look to your left, that's Abby's room. And so she was laying on the floor, right on the, on the opposite side of her bed. So when you look up and you look to the left at your eye level, you see under her bed and that's where her body was found. And so, like I said, she'd been laying there for a while. 
Um, and then if you continue on up the stairs, you go into her room and then you've got to go through another bedroom um, uh, and then through a third bedroom in the back. And then there's a stairwell that goes up to the third floor. Okay. So realistically, if there was an unknown killer that wasn't Lizzie, mm-hmm. they could they could easily get lost in the house. Sort of. I, I would assume so, yes. Unless, yeah, unless you didn't know the layout. Because if you were going out the front door, if you killed Abby and you're going out the front door, then it's a straight shot coming down the curved stairway and there's the door. Yeah. But then, then you've got to somehow wait somewhere to go back in and kill Andrew. Yeah. Now, if you're coming out the back, then you kill Abby. You've got to go through two bedrooms and then there's a back stairwell coming off that that back bedroom that goes down and then it also goes up to the third floor. So it's it's a little bit convoluted, like I said. But then again, now you've got to wait somewhere for Andrew to come home. Um, so and and Abby was or, uh, Lizzie Borden was there as well as the maid Bridget Sullivan. And so Bridget said that she was upstairs in the third floor sleeping because she had a headache. Uh, so they were both, they both put themselves in the house at the same time. Um, but, you know, like I said, I, I think the the jury was really kind of biased at that point because, you know, again, we're in 1892. They just don't think a woman is capable of doing something like this. Yeah. Different times. Yeah, exactly. Different, different times. So, so let's do the same then. So you've got the, how did you get the gig for this one? Was this quite, cause I know now it's like a hotel and it's quite hard to get bookings to even stay there. Right. Yeah, it's a bed and breakfast. And uh, so you can go and, and rent, you can either rent rooms, one of the rooms, two of the rooms, three of the rooms, or you can rent the entire house. So what we did is we rented the entire house. Okay. And uh, so when we went in there again, we had complete control of the environment. Um, we got there uh, in the early afternoon. And when was this? Was this was this before Mar Barker or was this after this Mar Barker? This was Barker? after. Okay. Yeah, this was this was last year. Okay. And um, so the very first thing that we do when we go into a location is we always turn on our audio recorders. I mean, even if we're just carrying in our luggage, as soon as we cross the threshold, audio recorders go on because you just don't know what you're going to capture. So we went into the house and um, there's five of us on this investigation. It was myself, my twin sister, Jenny, Michelle, our, our younger sister, and our friend, Cara, and then our friend, Miranda Young from Ghost Biker Explorations. She's another paranormal investigator who we absolutely love her style. So anyway, she was joining us on this investigation. And so all females, obviously. So we walk into the house and we start setting up some of our equipment and um, Cara and uh, Miranda and I are up on the third floor. Michelle is down in that smoking parlor that I told you about that's to the left of the front doorway. And Jenny is just standing there talking to her. So we have a voice recorder already set up in the parlor where Andrew was killed, as well as a, a video camera. And so you see Jenny and Michelle, they're just talking to each other, right? Low voices, just kind of talking about the day. And when we went back and listened to the audio recorder, you can hear them kind of mumble talking. And then you hear a man's voice saying, I'm standing right here next to you. They didn't see a man. They didn't hear the voice in the moment. It was just when we listened, when you go back and listen to it, you hear this man saying, I'm standing right here next to you. So go about an hour into the night. 
we still haven't started the investigation. We're still, you know, doing our stuff, setting up and stuff. And now Kara has come down into the parlor and she's actually sitting on the couch that the, the replica couch where Andrew Borden was killed. Um, and you see her and Jenny. Now they're just talking again, just talking about the day. And so then they start talking about the differences between the Velisca axe murder house, which we had investigated prior and this axe murder house. So they're just talking about, you know, axe murder houses. And Kara says, Either way, it'd be a horrible way to die. And we captured a man's voice saying it was. Again, there's nobody there, but yet it's an intelligent response. It's like it's listening to the conversation. And when Kara says that's a horrible way to die, it says, yeah, it was a horrible way to die. Um, So that those were two of the most compelling pieces of evidence that we captured that night. During the night when we were doing the investigation, um, we were up in the third floor room where Bridget Sullivan stayed. That was her quarters while she was the maid there. And so all five of us are in this room. The door is shut. So all of us are encased in this room and we have what's called a K2 meter. And this is a meter that just measures electromagnetic energy. And so we had one on the floor and uh, Miranda had one in her hand. So you hear Miranda say, I'm going to put this other K2 meter down so you can play with it too. And a man's voice from outside the door says, ignore it. And we all heard it in the moment. And, you know, you hear Cara say, did y'all hear that man's voice? And we said, yes. And so when you go back and listen to the audio, you can hear him, you can hear him plain as day saying, ignore it. So again, extremely intelligent. Uh, We captured children laughing. Um, Some of our equipment went off in response to children. Um, The children thing is very interesting. There were no kids in the house. Um, However, the next door neighbor house in in the early 1900s, there were two children that were killed in a well accident. And so it's believed that when you hear voices of these children in in, uh, the Lizzie Borden house, it's actually the the spirits of those two kids who killed, who were killed next door. Um, So that was extremely interesting to us. And so yeah, the entire night was just fascinating with regard to what we were able to capture. What goes through your mind when you hear, like, so you're all in the room, but personally for yourself, you hear him say, mm-hmm. what does it leave it or don't touch it? Said, it said, ignore it. Ignore it, sorry. Ignore it. Yeah. Because yeah. you even said that to me and I sort of got shivers down my spine. Mm-hmm. What do you think in the moment when you're in that room? It's one of those moments where it's like, okay, everybody just kind of freezes did we really hear that Jenny was closest to the door? She opened the door to make sure that, you know, there's, there's really nobody out there. Um, and it, it's just to us, it's, it's one of those kind of Holy grail moments, right? It's like, did we hear that? Yes, we did. We have audio in this room, right? Yes, we do. And so that that's one of the cool things about what we do. It's, it's those unexpected things that to us are absolutely fascinating because we know that there are no men in the house. We know that we have complete control of this environment, yet we're capturing this voice and it seems to be intelligent. And to us, that is just, that's the reason why we do what we do because it's fascinating. Yeah, I would absolutely run straight out of there. <laughs> If that was me. (laughs) But like you said, I think it's probably juggling the feelings of, oh my God, like what we're doing is really good. It's worthwhile. We've we've found something versus what have we found? We've heard someone, we've heard a ghost. Let's get out of there. That's what I'd be like anyway. (laughs) You must be a lot braver than me. (laughs) 
<laughs> <laughs> well, you know, for us, it's like I said, it's kind of what we do. We've we've heard it so often now. It's it. I mean, don't get me wrong. There are still moments when you absolutely get startled and you almost go into that uh, fight or flight type of mode where you're standing there, your hearing gets extremely acute, and you're like, you know, do I run or do I turn around and figure out what this is? And you know, we've been very fortunate that it's it's always been the latter. We always want to kind of find out what it is and if to the extent that we can see if we can communicate with it. Do you find that if you're doing a lot of this without any excess light pollution, so a lot of it would be in the dark, do you find that when you're in that situation, your hearing automatically enhances? Oh yeah, absolutely. Your your hearing enhances, your smell enhances. Um, it's incredible how many smells you really pick up on when you're in these locations. Um, uh, cigarette smells is a big one. Perfume, uh, aftershave, uh, whiskey, cigar smoke. You know those things. You really become aware of those things as well. Um, your feel, your sense of feel um, gets very acute. You know if you hear a vibration or um, you know if you think you hear a door slam um, from a cell block and you hear the reverberation you feel the reverberation as well. So that gets very acute. Um, you really do rely on other senses other than sight. You know, when you watch our videos, it it, it looks like we have ambient light because we're, we're filming in night vision, but we're in complete darkness in these rooms where, you know, we have no lights on um, most of the time, unless we're moving from a cell block to a cell block or room to room, we don't even turn on our flashlights. And so that, to your point, it, it, it does become extremely acute. And do you ever feel like something brush your hair or a hand on the shoulder or a blow in the ear or something? Mm -hmm. Oh yeah. We get that a lot. Um, (laughs) And (laughs) you know, when we, when we go in these locations, we do set our boundaries. And by that, I mean, you know, we tell the spirits, listen, we acknowledge that we're, we're coming into your, your space. We're just here to tell your story. We're not here to provoke you or get you to leave in any way, but you need to respect us by not touching us or harming us unless we give you permission to do so. And so by that, I mean, if I put my hand out for a child spirit and say, you know, can you give me a high five or do you want to touch my hand or pull my pant leg or something like that? We absolutely do get those responses. So there's been times where my pant leg has been pulled or, you know, you feel something on your hand, um, especially for a child when you're asking it to hold your hand or, or give you a high five or something like that so yeah yeah we've been we've been touched wow. for sure. so you've given a high five to someone on the other side yeah yeah at the exchange hotel in, in gordonsville virginia we feel like we we're communicating with a, a little boy's um jeremiah yeah he was pretty wow. cool that's something for the resume <laughs> wow. it's something for something <laughs> <laughs> so let's come on to that you briefly mentioned it there the uh, the velisca axe murders so this is mm-hmm. another another axe murder house. So I hadn't heard of this one. I'd heard of Lizzie Borden. I think I'd heard of Mar Barker from yourself. I don't recall you mentioning this one when we last spoke. So okay, yeah, I'll hand it over to you. Yeah. So the Velisca Axe Murders. Um, so this was a case that happened uh, J- uh, June 9th, uh, 1912. And this happened in Velisca, Iowa. And it's really, this little town is as small as it sounds. It is, it's, you know, cornfields for as far as the eye can see. And then you just come up on this little town of Velisca. And so it, during, uh, in 1912, this was just a little farmhouse. It's two stories. It has a very, very small footprint. Um, when you walk in the front door, 
it has a little sitting area. And then to the right, it's got this little small kitchen. And then there's one little bedroom. And then you've got these really narrow stairs that go up to the second floor. And the second floor just has a bedroom. And beside it is another little interior room that they used as a bedroom. And then it's got an attic. It's got an attic door. And then you walk in and, and the rest of the house there is just an attic, which is kind of creepy. Anyway, so in 1912, um, uh, the uh, the Josiah Moore and his family, um, they were four kids. So Josiah, Sarah um, was his wife. And then they had Herman, um, Mary Catherine, Arthur, and Paul. And those were their four kids. Um, and then they had two guests over, uh, Ina Stillinger and Lena Stillinger. Uh, they, uh, one was eight and one was 12 because they were friends of the, the Moore children. So the Moores and uh, the Stillinger girls, they went to church. They had a church function that night. So they went to church. And uh, so they came home. There was eight of them. They all came to the house. And Ina and Lena Stillinger uh, fell asleep in the downstairs bedroom. Uh, Josiah and his wife, Sarah, uh, were asleep in the upstairs bedroom. And then the four more children were, uh, they were all compacted into that second interior little bedroom. So somewhere before 5 a.m. in the morning of uh, on January or on June 9th, somebody was in the attic and they, it's still an unsolved murder as to who it was. He was in the attic and he came out and he bludgeoned to death with an axe, uh, Sarah and Josiah. And then he went after the children. So he killed all six of the kids that were there, um, again, beating them so hard with an axe that some of the kids couldn't even be recognized. So then after he was done with the murder, he covered the mirrors up uh, with some bed sheets that he found. He washed his hands uh, in the kitchen. Uh, he left the axe. He put a slab of bacon on uh, on the table and then he left and just walked out the door. And to this day, it's still an unsolved mystery uh, as to who committed those murders. But it is one of the most brutal unsolved murders in, in the United States. What do you think the thinking was behind covering the mirrors and the ham on the table? Yes. So that's a common practice, especially back in the uh, late 1800s, early 1900s. Um, People would cover the mirrors because they felt that um, when a person dies in a house or in a room that has a mirror in it, if you don't cover that mirror, then the spirits can use that as a portal. Um, So the mirrors are always covered. It's a a part of the mourning practice um, when people are in mourning. As uh, soon as the uh, as a person dies, the next step was to cover a mirror. So that shows a level of um, some type of, I think, guilt. Um, but it was just, you know, just a heinous, obviously a heinous crime. Um, the interesting thing is, is when you go into this house, it is so small. It, it's just a very small footprint. And so to not be able to, for the kids to hear the, the parents being bludgeoned to death was interesting. And I think the reason why that was is because it's extremely close to a train track. And while we were there, a train went by and it was extremely loud. And I think he may have used um, a train going by to, to mask the sound of him committing these murders. Because when you go into the house, and you go to that upstairs bedroom where the, the parents were, the axe marks are still on the ceiling. So he was raising the axe up. And as he did, the, the head of the axe would hit the ceiling and then he'd bring it down and, and hit their faces. Um, so those axe marks are still on the ceiling of the, of the, the room. Wow. Is there a possibility, the first time I've hearing it, of course, I'm sure investigators have thought of this, but with the the superstition of people in mourning normally cover up the tracks, sorry, cover up the mirrors, potential familiarity with the train track schedule, could this potentially have been someone that they knew or that was a relative? 
Well, they went to both theories. Um, so the first theory was that this was somebody that was transient, um, that he just came into town. Um, he He's just a murderer by trade. And he, for some reason, wanted to go ahead and target this family because there were other axe murders throughout the United States in this time frame. Um, this wasn't the only one. It, this was the most brutal because it involved six kids. Um, but there were other murders like this in the United States at the time. And they all followed railroad tracks. They were all in proximity to a railroad track. So the idea was that this was a transient person that was just a, a terrible person and was just murdering these families. The other theory was that it was somebody that they knew. There was speculation that uh, that Josiah Moore had an enemy because he was in the farm machinery business. So he worked for a guy that had farm machinery, but then he decided to go out on his own. And one of the clients that he brought with him was John Deere. And so this is a, obviously a big client at the time. And so um, they they thought that the the guy that he worked for, he could have committed the murders because he was so upset about losing the big client. Um, so it, it the speculation ran all over the board, but um, the problem at this time was you've got law enforcement that really hasn't dealt with anything like this before. So the crime scene was actually just a mess. After law enforcement was called and the police started investigating, people from the town went to the crime scene and they were walking all through the house while the bodies were still there. There wow. are rumors that pieces of the skulls were taken by people who just wanted to to have a, a, a quote unquote souvenir from the location. Um, so they weren't re- able to really recover any for forensic evidence. The axe was left there. There were cigarette butts um, upstairs in the attic, which led the cops to believe that the murderer had waited for some time for the family to return. Uh, I think there was at least three um, cigarettes that had been smoked in the attic by the killer. Uh, Again, after he committed the murders, he didn't really get out of there fast. I mean, he washed his hands because there was a bloody bowl of water in the kitchen. Um, There was a big slab of bacon, which nobody knows why that was there on the table. Um, So it was almost like he was very methodical in what he was doing. And then he just slipped into the night. Wow. So do you think based on his composure, this is probably not his first rodeo with regards to that? That's what I'm thinking. You know, I'm I'm under the impression, honestly, that it was a transient um, that for some reason was extremely malicious and he just targeted this family. Um, As I said before, there were other murders throughout the United States at this time frame that fit the same the same mo uh, but it's just it, it's one of those that you go through the history and you start looking at the pictures of the kids and the family and it's just it's so sad yeah so when did you visit this particular house then to conduct your investigation uh this was 2018 2018 is when we went to Velisca. okay so again was this one that you just sought out and thought we want to do that one as a like a bucket list one like you mentioned Yep, absolutely. So we, we really wanted to get out there. And again, um, it's one of those things that you see on television, but when you get into the actual, uh, in, into the house, it's so different. It's much smaller than I thought. Um, as I said, just a very, very small footprint. And so when you go to the house, um, basically they just give you a key and say, here, do what you want to do and throw the key in the box when you leave and have a great investigation. So again, it was one of those that we had complete control of the environment. Um, there were f- uh, five of us that night, five females, and the house is so small small that we really didn't go in as a group at at one time. There was a group of three of us that went in while the other two stayed outside. And then we would switch and do a different combination of our groups um, because we just didn't want all five of us in the house at the same time. 
And, but we were capturing some very interesting things. Um, there was uh, at one point, Michelle and Jenny were in the house and they were upstairs in the, in the small bedroom where the more children were killed. And um, so you, we've got this on audio and on video. So you see after they, they'd completed their questioning session, you see Jenny and Michelle stand up and Michelle kind of grabs her head and she goes, man, when I stand up, I get such a bad headache. And Jenny said, well, let's go get you some water. And they walk out of the room. And as they walk out of the room, you hear a child's voice saying, I didn't do that. So that was kind of interesting that we're capturing a child's voice in this room where these children were killed. And then um, there was one point where um, you hear Cara and Kim coming up the stairs because they were going to start their investigation upstairs. And from the attic, the voice recorder in the attic captured a man's voice saying downstairs where the uh, girls are sleeping. And that was extremely interesting because Lena and Ina Stillinger were the girls that were sleeping downstairs. But again, there's no men in this house. So I can't explain why this, why we captured this man's voice in the attic. Wow. It just, it just baffles me that because I'm quite a, a skeptic when it comes to things and, you know, I know you go in with the same logical approach as well, but even like I'm, I'm a real wuss for paranormal movies and stuff. I, mean, I like horror films and I'm quite good with gore, but when it comes to <laughs> paranormal and oh, I'm just terrible. So yeah, that, I just don't know what I would do if I heard something. I think, I don't know whether it would be worse Maybe you can answer this. Would it is it worse to hear something in the moment or to hear it afterwards, knowing that it happened while you were there, but you didn't realize it? Uh, that's kind of a mixed mixed emotion for me. Um I, I, honestly, both of them really thrill me. And uh, I think it's kind of, I think it's a little bit harder to actually hear it on the audio recorder and have missed it during the investigation. So going back to the Lizzie Borden house, um, if I would have known that that man was saying, I'm standing right here next to you, if I would have heard that in the moment, that would have allowed us to really have more follow-up questions. Like, who are you? Uh, why are you standing here? Why are you? And, and not that we didn't ask those questions before, but to know that we maybe could have had a, a, a different back and forth at that time. Because the 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 guy at uh, the Lizzie Borden house seemed extremely intelligent and was wanting to to be a part of our conversations, but at the same time, hearing something in the moment is is pretty awesome as well. Um, we were at uh, Hales Bar Dam in Guild, Tennessee, and uh, it has a series of tunnels that run under this dam. And um, it was just myself and Jenny at this time. At this point, I yelled down one of the tunnels and I said, "Can you say my name?" And we hear a guy yell back, "Christy." like there you go that's Jesus. there you go pretty awesome um but, uh, <laughs> i'd have been gone so, <laughs> so to gone. answer your question it's 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 kind of both of them for us are, are pretty fantastic yeah it's interesting they got the lizzie borden house because for one aspect you can think like when you were telling the story i was almost thinking he's sort of like eavesdropping and being a little bit cynical talking to himself but then from the <laughs> other side he might have been trying to reach out and get your attention and frustratingly you couldn't hear him in the time so mm -hmm. i suppose it could have been both mm -hmm. but yeah that, that's that's really really just it, it's just interesting and you tell it so well which is a great thing out of those you. three you, you might not have a favorite but out of those three which did you have the the most rewarding experience with Honestly, I think the Ma Barker house, uh, and I say that simply because um, we grew up probably about 
six miles from that house. So every time we would go and get the mail um, with my Nana or my granddaddy, uh, we'd pass that house and and they'd say that was where Ma Barker was. You know, that's where Ma Barker got killed. And, and for us, it was just fascinating to be one, the first paranormal investigation team to investigate that location. Um, but then to be able to highlight that investigation because there's so many people in the population that don't know about this story. And, and so even though in 1935, the national spotlight was on Marion County, Florida, because the, the Ma Barker gang was basically, um, you know, demolished at that point. Nobody knew this story. So when we did our investigation and we put our video out on YouTube, we were getting, we, we did TV interviews, we did radio interviews, we did newspaper interviews, and we constantly had people come up and say, I was born and raised in Marion County and I never knew the story. I never heard wow. about this story. So for us to be able to highlight that location, just from the historical standpoint for us was just extremely rewarding because that's what we love to do. We love to tell these stories and highlight them and get them out there so people can understand the his the historical significance of these locations. Yeah. Now it's good to bring um lesser known cases to the forefront to give it sort of equal exposure, I suppose. What we'll do is before we come on to some listener questions before we close out, I remember when I spoke to you last year, you told me a story about your grandpa and your grandma mm -hmm. would you mind telling me that story yeah absolutely so my uh my grandma and grandpa we actually called them nana and granddaddy my granddaddy died in 1986 it was a just a sudden heart attack and my nana actually found him um, in the house and uh so but they they were extremely close i mean they really loved each other and so it was a, a real tragic blow to our family and um so i was extremely close with my nana and i'm actually named after her so uh, in 2016, I had the, the most vivid dream I've ever had in my life. It actually happened three nights in a row. And on the first night, I see granddaddy in this dream. And I can tell you how he smelled, how he looked, you know, what clothes he was wearing, where he was standing. He was in a very specific spot in this house that Nan and granddaddy lived in together in the dream was depicted this very specific spot. And so on the first night, he just looked at me and then he kind of gave a moan and he disappeared into the wall. And so it kind of freaked me out. Right. I, 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 it was almost like a nightmare at that point. So it happened twice more. And um, I, I woke up and I, I told my mom about it. I'm like, mom, I'm having this dream about granddaddy and it is so vivid. And she just kind of off the cuff, she said, just ask him what he wants. So the next night I had the same dream. And in the dream, I said, granddaddy, what do you want? And so he looked at me and he said, I'm waiting on your Nana. You're going to be getting a call soon. And so then he turned and he walked out of the wall. And so about two weeks later, we got a call saying that my Nana had been in an accident. Uh, she fell pretty violently. She fell down and she ended up you know, completely breaking her hip. And so while she was in the hospital, she ended up getting MRSA and she never really recovered from that accident. So we put her into hospice. And she was in hospice for probably about four or five weeks. And um, so during that hospice day, you know, she was in and out of lucidness. And she would say things like, you know, grand, your granddaddy came to me last night. We danced. You know, he looks great. I, all this other stuff while she was in hospice. And so when she, the day that she passed, we were all in the hospice room. And the day that she passed, uh, and with permission from my family, I looked at my twin sister and I said, I know where she's going. She's going to go meet granddaddy in the spot that was depicted in this dream. And so we grabbed some equipment and this was literally three hours after she died. And we went over to the house 
and the house had been uh, closed up, right? We had turned off the power and all, so there's no power in the house. And so we go to the spot that was depicted in this dream and we have two meters called K2 meters. And again, they're designed to measure electromagnetic energy. So if there's no power acting on these, the light array and the light array goes from green to red. If there's no power acting on them, then it stays at green. But if power acts upon them, it'll spike up to orange or red, depending on the power level. And so we had two of them. We had a gray one and we had a black one. And so we're standing there. Jenny and I were about two feet apart. And I start asking questions. I said, Nan, are you here? And both of the meters start lighting up. I said, okay, if just to confirm, can you stop lighting up both of them and just go to the gray one? And it did. And I said, okay, one more time. Can you stop on the gray one and just go to the black one? And it did. And so we started asking all these questions like, is granddaddy here with you? Can you just go to the gray one? And it lit up. And so through a series of questions, we were able to determine what I felt was Nana and granddaddy met up at that point and um, they ascended to whatever's next because we went back about two weeks later with the exact same tools and the exact same questions and we didn't get anything on any of our equipment. Nothing happened, nothing blipped. Um, so in, in my theory is that after she passed, she met up with granddaddy in that location and they moved on together. Wow. Such a good, it's like a romantic, sad, heartbreaking, scary, mm-hmm. <laughs> petrifying, <Yeah>. but sweet <laughs> story. <laughs> it, it really is. And you know, for me, it as I said before, I was extremely close with Nana. And for me, it was very peaceful. And it allowed me to know that one, she's okay. And two, that when we pass, it's not a transition that we make alone, that there is a loved one there that will be waiting, that will assist us to, to, to move to whatever's next. And, um, you know, for me, that, that really allowed me to be calm about the, the passing of my Nana and, you know, about what's, what's going to happen in the future with, with everybody else. What do you think happens next out of interest once so it once you let's say you do pass and someone's waiting for you mm-hmm. what do you think happens next well for me um i do come from a very strong christian background so my faith is that there is a god and that there is a heaven and um i do believe that we ascend to that but i don't think that it's always instantaneous um you know for example i i, I don't think that that granddaddy instantaneously went up after he passed. I think that he waited. He was allowed to wait and he waited for Nana. And now I think both of them have moved on together. So I, I there's by saying that, that means I'm not going to go looking for Nana and granddaddy. I don't think they're spirits. I don't think they're ghosts anymore. Um, okay. If you want to use that term, I think they've moved on. Um, but I do think that there are some instances that after you die, you don't automatically ascend to whatever's next. You have unfinished business or there's some reason that your that your spirit is allowed to stay closer to, we'll call it the veil between this world and the next. So for me, um, that that's my interpretation of what, what happens. Cool. Cool. Right. So like I said, well, this is before we started recording. I put a post out on Instagram and Twitter. I got a couple on there of questions for my listeners to ask you. And I've got a okay. few that I'll, uh, I'll just run past you. So first we have Will who reached out on Instagram. He said, have you ever been overly haunted by any of your experiences? 
And that's a great question, Will. Thank you for asking it. Not particularly overly haunted. Um, there's been some locations that uh, are are those locations that are a little bit, what I would say, darker. I'm not going to say that they were negative per se, like in demonic or evil, um, but we've had experiences where um, we have a lot of activity. Um, Brushy Mountain State Penitentiary comes to mind. That's in Petros, Tennessee. Um, this was a maximum security prison that was in operation from 1896 to 2009. And um, um, it was really where the worst of the worst were housed in the state of Tennessee. And so then that location, we were getting um, footsteps, door slams, audible voices. We actually had a, a camera that during the night rocks were being thrown at it from an unknown source. Wow. Um, so, yeah, we have a lot of, of experiences like that, um, but nothing that I've ever felt threatened by. Um, there's nothing that has ever followed us home. Um, we do a very good job of what I feel is um, protecting ourselves, both physically and spiritually. And by that, I mean, we say a prayer protection before we go in, we say a prayer protection when we come out. And so for us, we've been very fortunate to not have anything attached to us or threaten us physically in any way. Yeah. Just out of interest, do you believe in demonic possession of people? So the, the common thing would be the exorcist, but obviously that's, you know, I, I do. I believe it's possible. I, for me, demons are a little bit different. Um, I, for what we do, we go into these places looking for spirits that had a human existence, right? They were born, they lived, they died. That's who we're trying to communicate with. For me, demons were never human. They never had a human existence, but they are the representation of the evil of the good and the evil of the world. So I do think that demons are possible. I do think that demons are out there. We never go searching for them. We never go provoking or antagonizing anything that we would consider demonic. Um, so because of that, we've never encountered anything that I would consider demonic. Now, there have been places that I would say are darker. and But by that, I mean, when you go into Brushy Mountain State Penitentiary, you're going into an environment that housed the worst of the worst, right? These were not good guys in life probably not going to be good guys in death. So there are those that um, don't really want us in the area, but I'm not going to call them demonic. They just want their space. So in that instance, we leave them alone. We say, if, if there's a, uh, if you want to communicate with us, we'll leave a voice recorder for you or a camera for you. You can communicate with us that way, but there are other places on this property that we're going to investigate and we'll leave you to your space. So because of that, again, I don't think there's we've never encountered anything that's been threatening because we just give them that respect to, to be in their own space. Okay, cool. So question two comes from Lexi again on Instagram. She said, and this is an interesting one. Can you actually see the spirits or she said, is it more of a discombobulated voice? I think that's a good thing as far as apparitions are concerned. Have you ever seen anything like what we know in media and TV as a, a ghostly figure? Or is it more of the, the voices and the, the K2 boxes and kind of stuff? And that's a great question, Lexi. Thank you. Um, for us, we've been fortunate enough to, uh, on three different occasions, actually see a, a sh what we call a shadow figure. Now, I haven't seen anything that I would consider a full-bodied apparition per se. Like I can't, I haven't been able to look at this thing and say, okay, that's Abe Lincoln and no, it's Abe Lincoln, right? What we've seen are shadows. And the the, the best example of this one is at Brushy Mountain State Penitentiary. We've investigated there twice. The second time was a collaboration investigation with Miranda from Ghost Biker Explorations. And so it was Miranda and her camera guy, Josh, and myself, my twin sister, Jenny, and our investigator, Kim. So there's only five of us in the property. 
And the facility has a large gymnasium where, you know, the inmates would play basketball and all of that. And so we set up and it's completely dark. So in the middle of the gymnasium, we've set up some things that have some ambient light. So we had a glow in the dark balloon. We had a couple of pieces of equipment that just have little light arrays on them. So, but very minimal light in this, this facility, right where we're at. And so we're back probably about 15 or 20 feet from all of this stuff. And we have a semicircle going around. And so Miranda is holding a camera called an SLS camera. Generally speaking, it's a camera that has an algorithm in it that when it perceives a human in the room, it puts it as a stick figure on the screen. So even though there's nobody in front of it, if it perceives that it's a human form, there's the stick figure will appear. Mm -hmm. So she's holding the camera and Josh is filming her holding this camera. And so as we're asking questions, I see a shadow figure right in front of me and it runs in front of me and it cuts off my line of sight to everything in the middle of the room. And as I'm saying, did y'all see that Miranda is seeing something on the SLS camera? She sees an anomaly. So you hear her at the same time. I'm saying, did y'all see that? You hear Miranda say, I just captured something on the camera. So Josh pans up and we're now all looking in the middle of the room. And this, this shadow figure runs by again, and it cuts off the line of sight to all of us, as well as the camera that Josh is using to film. So that was a very interesting wow. shadow figure. We also captured one at Fort Mifflin. Um, we had a laser grid set up in a casemate um, sitting beside a, a stationary night vision video camera. And during the night when we were on the complete other side of the fort, a shadow figure walks across this casemate and you see it cut off all of the the laser beams as it's crossing through this grid. So that's been, there's been examples of the shadow figures that we've seen. Wow. I remember seeing the laser one at uh, Mm -hmm. Fort Mifflin. That was really creepy. (laughs) It's all creepy to me. Very scary as well. It's all on YouTube, guys. If you want to see any of these cases, Soul Sisters Paranormal on YouTube, it's all there and it's scary as hell. So next question is from Claudia on Instagram, which who says, sorry, how many investigations turn out to be real hauntings slash paranormal? We kind of covered that one, I think, at the start where you said it was roughly 25% weren't. So, mm-hmm. so I guess the answer to that is 75%. The next question comes from Bobby, who hosts Killer Stories podcast. What is your opinion on the Amityville horror? And that's a great question. Again, thank you for asking it. That is another fascinating case. And, uh, you know, I, I, if that was, if I could get into that location, that'd be awesome as well. Um, <laughs> again, you know, I, I think that when you have a location where all of this tragic event happens at the same time and there's a large release of energy or, or a large uh, amount of death occurring at the same time, I think that you're going to have that energy released, right? It has to go somewhere. If you subscribe to the fact that energy is, is cannot be created or destroyed, then it's got to go somewhere. And I believe that in some cases it will stay with the location, such as the Ma Barker house in the location where the person has died. And so for me, you know, that's just another example of, of that location, right? You've got these, um, these murders that are taking place. And it's, it's one of those where I, I think that you've got that energy that's just staying there, um, whether or not it has a story or it just wants to stay because it hasn't moved on yet. I just think that's another example of it. Yeah. It's a good story. That one mm-hmm. good, good films as well. <laughs> <laughs> so the next question comes from someone on Instagram called the telltale meme. I don't know who runs the page, but I follow them and they follow me. They just said, what scares you the most? It's quite a general question. Snakes. 
I'll go with snakes. <laughs> a live I snake. I hate snakes. Not, not dead snake. <laughs> a live snake, yes. I, I can't stand them. Um, so that's what scares me the most. Um, <laughs> you know, anything else, it, 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 you know, it's just one of those things that I can handle, um, you know, just kind of take it as it comes. From the paranormal aspect, you know, there's, we've been to so many locations and, Again, there are there are things that startle you, right? You just can't be sitting there in the dark and and hear something like this and you don't get startled. But you know, we've never been a group that runs out of a location. We've never been a group that that screams and just runs around and and says, "I'm out of here." That's not really our style. Um, you know, for us, it's more about that exploration as to what's causing this. Can we find answers? Can we get a communication or a dialogue going um, with this spirit? And so, you know, for us on the paranormal side nothing really has, has scared us to the point of running out. Honestly, I'm more afraid of the living than I am the dead at this point. There's, you know, so. Yeah. I think it's important to remember that when we perceive ghosts because of how they are in movies, they're portrayed as scary and um, malevolent, I suppose. But mm-hmm. a lot of the people like in the Lizzie Borden case, those are just in theory, innocent people who've just been murdered. So yeah, you know, the, why would there be anything to be scared of? But it's the unknown of not knowing what it is. You can't see it. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And, you know, when we go on these investigations, and if you're watching your, of, of our videos, the the common theme that you'll see throughout is we always say we want to tell your story. We, we're legitimately there to tell the story of the location and any spirit that wants to communicate with us. And so we go in with a level of respect to tell that story and to communicate with those, those individuals. And so for us, finding that evidence is, is fascinating more so than it is scary. Now, again, for somebody who never does it, um, I, I can see where it would absolutely be um, something to, to, to kind of be a little bit leery of. But w- like I said, we've never been threatened. We've never been physically harmed in any way uh, we just think that we're communicating with those people that have a story to tell and or want to be recognized because i mean the very core of human existence is to be recognized and be acknowledged right nobody wants to go through life um knowing that they're invisible or can't be seen or that nobody acknowledges them and i think it's the same way with spirits you know mm-hmm. they just want to know somebody to know that they're still there yeah yeah, that makes sense. So another next question is from Josephine again on Instagram. What was the most dangerous situation you've had as a paranormal investigator? Quite similar to the early question, but I'm mm-hmm. sure we can elaborate on that. Well, and that's a great question. Thank you so much for asking it. Honestly, one of the most intense investigations was at the old Gilcrest County Jail in Trenton, Florida. And um, this is a location that it's a very, very small county jail. It was an operation from 1928 until 1968. And after that, it said abandoned for decades. And so it really became this location where um, a lot of drug activity happened, uh, a lot of criminal activity happened there, prostitution and stuff, um, because really nobody really monitored the, the the facility. And so when we investigated there, the first time I investigated there, it was just myself and Miranda from Ghost Biker Explorations. She and I had collaborated on this one. And so she and I were the only two people on this property and in this building. And so when uh, we approached the owner about investigating there, she said, um, yeah, you guys can investigate, but do you carry? 
and meaning do you both have handguns? And uh, we said, yeah, yeah, we're both licensed to carry and we both have pistols. And she said, I highly recommend you keep your guns on you at all times during the night because that's the area that we're in. And so, uh, you know, you go in with that sense of trepidation because you don't know what you're going to encounter when you walk in there. So I wouldn't call it dangerous per se, because I think we were physically protected there, obviously with what we had going on. Um, But that type of location um, and, and others like that, that we've investigated, you do go in with that sense of you've got to make sure it's it's not just the paranormal that you need to be aware of. You also need to be aware of physical harm as well. Mm. I suppose you could run the risk of if you're listening out for sounds becoming, I suppose, overly un, almost unprepared, a little bit naive as to the outside. If you're so focused on the intrinsic side and the spirits, if someone walked in, you could easily just walk out all cautious and it could just be someone from the real world who you forget exists. You're, you're absolutely right. So um, when we're investigating cemeteries and such, um, homeless people, uh, transients, um, uh, people there, you know, one, one of the uh, the locations that Miranda Young, uh, again, from Ghost Biker Explorations, um, when she does her videos, uh, the, if you watch her intro, uh, she her intro is through a cemetery. She's walking through a cemetery and, um, you know, get, through getting to know her and becoming friends with her, she's taken me to the cemetery. And um one of the nights she was filming there, um, after they left, you know, like a day after they left, they found two decapitated bodies that had been murdered and thrown into that cemetery. Um, so, yeah, you, you do have to be aware of, of your surroundings, absolutely. Wow. Imagine if she'd caught the spirits of those individuals who've been very recently murdered. Uh, yeah, we, we were trying to decide <laughs> if it was too soon to do that or not. Probably would be uh, something <laughs> yeah, the police yeah, would be interested know. in. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. So next question is from Scaring Sam, which is a horror podcast that was on Twitter. It said, what is your stance on orbs? So do you think orbs are either spirits captured or just, just particles in an anomaly with the camera, for example? From our experience and the equipment that we use, um, we do not put orbs out there as being paranormal. Um, I know a lot of people do. Uh, for us, you know, we've we've studied this. We've studied um, bugs going through. We've studied dust going through. Mice, roaches, all of those pick up a different. You, you see them differently on a night vision video camera. Um, so for us, I, I'm not discounting that orbs exist, but the majority of what we see on our video cameras is is just that it's dust or bugs. Um, now, that being said, there have been two or three instances where an orb has appeared uh, that behaves differently than anything I've ever seen. Um, an example of that is um, uh, Miranda Young. Again, I'll go back to her. She's one that you know we collaborate on different things together. Um, she was investigating Octagon Hall in, uh, in Kentucky. And so I was actually filming for her that night and uh, she was sitting down in the basement um, and, uh, as I'm filming her and she's, she's, uh, doing an experiment with some dowsing rods, this light just appears right in front of her and it goes all around her head and then it goes up and then it comes down and then it just disappears. Now for me, and you can see us trying to touch it, trying to feel it. She can't see it. I can see it. That behaved differently than anything I've ever seen before. And so that to me was something legitimately that I cannot explain. Whether or not it's paranormal, I don't know. I could not explain it at the time. Um, But the majority of things that we capture on our our cameras, we don't put out as evidence as paranormal. Okay. 
Uh, next question comes from Alex of Weird Distractions Podcast, another true crime one. So I think this, again, we might be covering a bit of all ground, but what's the scariest paranormal interaction you've ever had? So let's say, let's take this from the point of view where you mentioned you've like high-fived kids in there and you've had a, their hand on the back. Has there ever been a moment where you've been close to calling it a day because you felt <laughs> like your boundaries have been crossed? I'd say the most interesting one, uh, that action ha- actually happened at the Grand Old Lady Hotel. In uh, uh, This was in Balsam, North Carolina. And this hotel, it was built in 1905. It was extremely opulent for the time. So it's three stories. It's got about 100 guest rooms, um, a grand ballroom, a, t- a little tavern inside. And so when we investigated there, we had the entire building to ourselves for, an, for a weekend. Um, and so we had the property to ourselves. And so there's just three of us, myself, my twin sister, Jenny, and Miranda from Ghost Biker. And um, so Miranda did her investigation on the Friday night. And then Jenny and I did our investigation on the Saturday night. And but we're all in the building at the same time. So on Saturday night, um, we decided that we were going to sleep in a, in a room, all three of us were going to sleep in a room that's a suite. And so this suite is sitting right next to um, the, re- the most reportedly haunted hallway in the building. And so the suite has two rooms in it, an, in, an interior room that had two twin beds or two queen beds, and then an, an exterior room uh, that had a full bed where Miranda was sleeping, but only one doorway that goes from the entire suite to the hall. And so Miranda was the one sleeping closest to that doorway. So we have our night vision video cameras. We have one inside the room and then we have one outside in the hallway. So we know that there's nobody in the hall. And so you see us say goodnight. You hear us say goodnight. You see Miranda turn off her light. And about 15 minutes later, there's a man's voice outside the door that says, please don't go. And so Miranda said, did you hear that? And I'm like, yeah. And she goes, what was that? And I said, there's a man standing outside our door. And so it was so loud. Everything that we had running that night captured this voice. And so that was a time where you you mentioned the acute hearing. You're laying there and you kind of get a little bit chilled and your hearing becomes very acute. It kind of goes into that fight or flight moment. So you're really intense for the like the next 15, 20 minutes. You know, what's going to happen next? Is it going to try to come through the door? Um, are we going to hear it again? Um, so that was probably one of the more startling um, voices just because it was so loud. Um, and we all heard it and everything captured it. So I would, I would say that's probably a, a good example of one that was really startling for us. I would say yes, <laughs> <laughs> absolutely. But that's uh, that's the end of the questions from okay. from the listeners. I hope they've all been answered, which I think they have thoroughly. So you mentioned when we spoke before we started recording that you've got a new business up and running, and you're currently sat in some kind of dungeon area of it. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I am currently sitting in the historic Scott County Jail in Huntsville, Tennessee. And this jail was in operation until ni- from 1904 up until 2008. And then it set vacant until um, this year uh, when Miranda and I, again, she, you know, through the, through the paranormal, Miranda and I become best friends. So she and I started a business earlier this year called History, Highways and Haunts. And uh, we run out of this jail. Um, and we offer uh, general history tours 
because we had the jail set up as a museum. So you can come through the jail and uh, just learn some facts about crime and punishment. Uh, we have a law enforcement appreciation room of different artifacts from Scott County, different art- artifacts from Huntsville. Um, and then uh, so you, there's a general museum. And then we have after dark tours, flashlight tours, pr- uh, public paranormal investigations where you can investigate with us uh, as paranormal investigators. And then we have private paranormal investigations. So you can rent the facility and, and come and uh, conduct paranormal research inside cool no that's really good and as far as the the source sisters then have you got any projects coming up with that or is it more focused on the on the prison side I uh, know we do. We have several investigations coming up next year. Um, hopefully we'll be releasing our next investigation video by the end of this year. Uh, we went to Post Town Elementary School in Ohio. We did that earlier this year in August. Um, so that's the next investigation video that we that we will be releasing. Um, we've got a couple others in the hopper that we're also working on. So um, be on the lookout for those. And then uh, we have several investigations lined up for next year, um, hopefully in North Carolina, um, in Texas and some other states as well cool so where's uh here's your chance to plug everything where's the best place to find you Um, our website is www.soulsistersparanormal.com anything you want to know about us is is on that website kind of how we got started all the all the places we've gone to um, any appearances that we will be at uh, conventions or um, symposiums and such is on that website we're very active on facebook under soul sisters paranormal and then on youtube under soul sisters paranormal cool I'll link the website in the description so it's easy for everyone that don't have to write it down. They can just click on the little link in the in, the bio, in the bio. Yeah, but yeah, thanks a lot for coming on. It's been good to catch up and uh, absolutely really good to learn about three historic American murder cases. I was going to start a show once before I started British murders. I was going to like put my hand in all different areas i was going to have british murders american murders european murders i didn't realize how much work it would be just to do one so oh, I'm, yeah. just, I'm just i'm just sticking <laughs> to british murders there's that. a lot of murders out there <laughs> but anytime really, you want to come really. back over to the u.s let me know and i'll uh, we'll talk some more that's perfect so i really appreciate your time and thank you for coming on absolutely Stuart. thank you thank you